We are different from other nations. I know professors drive them crazy to say American exceptionalism. They hate that. The average length of a constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. This year, we're 232 years under the same constitution. So we are unique. We're the exception, not the rule. Hello and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special. I'm excited to welcome today David Barton from Wall Builders. They focus on America's forgotten history and heroes. They emphasize the religious, moral, and constitutional heritage of our nation. I'm going to get to all of it in just one second. But first, there's a widely held belief that procrastination is a bad thing because most of the time it is, but life isn't so black and white. Sometimes procrastination can actually work in your favor. For example, let's say you need life insurance, but you've been putting it off because you were lazy. Well, congratulations. You've managed to procrastinate long enough for technology to make it really easy for you to get life insurance. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. No sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, but you've been busy doing literally anything else, check out Policy Genius. It's the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for life insurance, which is why they made it easy for you. Be a responsible adult. Make sure you're not buried in a pauper's grave and that if something bad should happen to you, your family is taken care of. It's part of being responsible. Go check them out at PolicyGenius.com. That's PolicyGenius.com. David, thanks so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. So for those who don't know, why don't you explain what Wall Builders is? Wall Builders is the name we take from the Bible book of Nehemiah. We like that story in the Bible. It is the story of rebuilding that which has been torn down. Uh, Nehemiah goes back, and it's the largest grassroots story in the Bible. And a project they thought would be impossible to achieve, they did in 52 days because everybody did something. I, I like the image that in rebuilding the walls, while you would normally want stonemasons, you had a guy and his daughters out there, you had apothecaries, you had jewelers, you had soldiers, everybody did something. And so we look at America and say, you know, if everybody gets involved and does something, if they'll just rebuild, as the priest did in Nehemiah, they only rebuilt their own home. The men of Tekoa built a long section, but the priest just did a little bit. Okay, if everybody does something, the whole thing goes back up in a remarkably short period of time. So that's the image we like as wall builders, everybody doing something. You don't have to be qualified or you don't have to be a specialist. Just get involved and rebuild something that's been torn down, uh, the morals, the faith, the character, education, politics, whatever it is, get in there and rebuild. Well, I want to get your take on educational policy in the United States, how that ought to change. But I want to start with you brought uh, some, some memorabilia with you. So Wall Builders is, is an organization that has one of the largest private collections of founding era memorabilia documents and, and other materials uh, in, uh, in the world. So before we get to you showing me some of this stuff, because it's really, really cool. You're showing some of this to me before we actually began filming this. How did you get into actually collecting all of this stuff? I got to go back in my story. I was a math and science guy, went to college on a math and science scholarship, uh, became a teacher and then became a school principal, and math and science was my deal. I did basketball and coaching and other things, but I wasn't at all a history guy. I didn't like history, didn't like it in high school, didn't like it in college, didn't like it any time, and yet not liking history, um, I came across two really old documents that I had been taught about in school. And I'd been taught about those documents, but when I actually read them, they were totally opposite to what I'd been taught about in school. And so I'm, now I'm going, to, wait a minute, here's what I learned, but I'm holding the actuals, and they're not the same. 
And that got me looking at others. And, and the more I looked in the history, the more it was so different from what I'd been taught. And I really loved what I was finding. And so at that point, I, I did lots of public speaking, and, and we actually retired six vans at 300,000 miles on each van. We just drove all over the United <laughs> States so many times, millions of miles. And as we would go through places, we would stop in, in, in towns at, at a thrift shop or Salvation Army or, or you know something. I remember walking into a store in Connecticut where that as I walked in, I had to part the used dresses to go by, and there was used stoves over here and trashes over here. And in the back, I found a box of leather-bound books, and it turned out to be the library of one of the founding fathers. And people had had his books, and they're selling them five books a book back there. <laughs> they didn't have a clue what they had. And so as I have, and I would say when I started, I, I could, out of 250 founding fathers, maybe name five. So I didn't know who most of them were. So I ended up buying a book from a guy named Hugh Williamson for 12 bucks. Well, he's one of the 39 guys who signed the Constitution, but nobody's ever heard of him today. So at that point in time, I was able to just buy lots of stuff and, and read it and go through all their writings. And just, this is amazing. It's not what I was taught. Now today, it's a little different because with internet, you can Google and say, oh, this guy was a signer of the Constitution. I'll raise the price on him. <laughs> but back then, it was really easy to get this stuff. So today, uh, there's probably 80 or 90 vendors who make a living selling this stuff. They know that we buy, and so they'll contact us and say, do you want this? And so now I don't have to go out and, and search like we did before. But it was a really fun journey finding all this old stuff. Well, I mean, you brought some of it with you, and, and I want to give you the opportunity to kind of show our listeners and our viewers what exactly you have, because some of this stuff is just unbelievable. It You're is. showing it to me before the show. so. Well, we'll start with George Washington. Easy name to recognize. This actually uh, are two parts of one lock of his hair. Um, he gave this lock to Alexander Hamilton as, as he was dying at, at, at Mount Vernon. And so the Hamilton family with two kids divided it. So this is what went to the son of Alexander Hamilton. This is the daughter. And this ring is braided hair in there. So this is just an amazing thing to, to hold the hair of George Washington. Back then, we kind of say hair. That's kind of creepy. It's, <laughs> well, back then, that was how you passed yourself on from generation to generation. You passed on a lock of hair. And so that's from, from Hamilton. Um, one of the signers of the Declaration, 56 signers, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing for me now, being in history, is I'll speak at law schools and speak at these really good, sharp kids, and I can ask them, I'll show them a picture of 56 signers of the Declaration and say, who can you recognize up there? And they usually get Jefferson and Franklin. I've only one time ever had somebody name a third one. I said, no, wait a minute, there's 56 guys here. Give me some more. And they never can. And so I find it interesting that basically we've been trained to recognize the two least religious guys, and we know nothing about the others. And so when you jump into this guy, he's a signer of the Declaration. Uh, his name is Francis Hopkinson. He designed the first American flag. George Washington made him one of our first federal judges. But he's a church <coughs> music director and choir leader. And this is actually the first purely American hymn book. It's the first hymn book in America to ever have music in it. And what he did was set the 150 psalms to music. So this is the entire book of Psalms set to music. His thing was, let's sing the Psalms like David sang the Psalms. So this is from a signer of the Declaration. Um, you also have items like this. This is a Bible from 1782. Uh, this Bible from 1782 is one of the rarest in the world. They printed 10,000 copies back then. There's eight copies left in private hands, and this is this one of them. There's a few other copies in institutions. But what makes this amazing is on the inside of this Bible, and by the way, this is the first Bible printed in English in America. 
it has a congressional endorsement on the inside, and it says resolve. Uh, the Congress of the United States recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. It is printed by the printer of Congress. Uh, this was explained to Congress that this was, quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools. And you're going, wait a minute. I was told the founding fathers didn't want religion near school at all. And you go, well, what do you do with this? The congressionally endorsed Bible for the use of schools. So th there's just so many things like that. Uh, it's, it's kind of fun, too, to back up even to works like this. Um, this is a guy named John Wise. He's, he's a pastor in Massachusetts. And historians like at Cornell, they say, when you look at the six greatest intellectual forces that helped shape America, because we are different from other nations. I know professors drive them crazy to say American exceptionalism. They hate that. The average length of a constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. This year, we're 232 years under the same constitution. So we are unique. We're the exception, not the rule. But when you take and look at where the ideas come, came from, professors said John Wise was one of the six most influential writers on the Founding Fathers' thinking. And it was this book, The Sons of Liberty, now this originally came out in 1710 and 1717. Sons of Liberty reprinted this in 1772. So this is the edition from The Sons of Liberty. And it has two long sermons in here that he did. And from these sermons, we get the phrase that all men are created equal. We get the concept they're endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. He talks about how that taxation without representation is tyranny. He talks about how that all the forms of government in the Bible, God's preferred form is the consent of the governed. All these phrases that end up in the Declaration came out of his writings, his mm -hmm. sermons. And so those are the kind of things we have. And you and I were talking earlier. And this is a guy I really like, John Locke. Um, the two treatises of government. Richard Henry Lee, signer of the Declaration, said that they, quote, copied the Declaration out of this book. And so as you go through this book, it's Fun to read. I mean, the, logist, the, the apologetics for government are amazing. But he cites the Bible, references the Bible more than 1,500 times in this. And this is what the founders used to create this successful document. So that's, that's the kind of stuff we have. we got so much more. I've got John Hancock stuff and so many other founding fathers. But we just have a blast learning this stuff because it's not what we were taught in school and then sharing it with others. Well, one of the things that you've been talking about a lot and is really important to me, I mean, I wrote a book that largely concerns this, is the impact of religious thought on American founding thought. So obviously, you've mentioned it a couple of times, so you should hone in on it. There's this idea that's taught in schools that effectively America is a secular country, yeah. that it was founded along the idea of separation of church and state. Uh, to this end, the First Amendment is, is often cited, the idea that you can't establish a religion and then forgetting about the second half, which is that there's freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. the, so what exactly, in your view, was the relationship of founding thought to religion? How much did the founders rely on religious thought, and what did they think in terms of governance and religion, how those two should be balanced? They were very adamant um, that you do not separate religious principles. Now, doctrines are one thing. Religious principles are, are something else. And so when they said there should be no establishment of religion back then, an establishment of religion was a state-established religion. They had no trouble with religion. They promoted it. Um, the first federal law that was passed dealing with how you become a territory in the United States is called the Northwest Ordinance. George Washington signed that on, on August the 7th of 1789. That's how 32 states became states in the United States. And that law specifically says... Article 3, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and means of education shall forever be encouraged. 
So to this day, if you look in constitutions like the current North Carolina Constitution, you look in Iowa, Kansas, et cetera, it says forever in the public schools of this state, religion and morality would be taught as well as knowledge. So they saw that as a mandate that you can't be part of America if your schools don't promote religion and morality. Now, which particular denomination? No, we're not doing that. But the principles of Bible, principles of, of how we control ourselves, behave, behave our, our morality, it all comes from there. And so they were huge into promoting that. Uh, I mentioned that there were two documents that just kind of turned me around. One of them was I actually got a copy of George Washington's 1796 Farewell Address. Hmm. And that's considered one of the most significant presidential speeches ever given. It's interesting that we have state laws from 1820, where that in 1820, you were required in states to take a written exam on four documents every year for the first eight years of school. And those four documents were the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the state constitution, and George Washington's farewell address. You had to study that. You had to know that. A written exam for the first eight years of school once a year. Uh, it's interesting that in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln actually issued a general order to all the Union troops and said, guys, if you're not fighting the enemy today, I want you to spend the whole day reading George Washington's farewell address, meditating on his principles, thinking about what he said. Same happened in World War I with Woodrow Wilson. Read the farewell address. So we really thought this was significant. And in the farewell address, Washington is saying, okay, here we are at two terms. I'm leaving, retiring. You all know what we've been through. And he talks about economics. He talks about what happened with the revolution. And he says, and now my fellow citizens, as I leave, here's a few thoughts. And they're almost like warnings. I mean, one of the things he says is, don't let the federal government get into deficit spending. You know, it's one of his great warnings. He talks about avoiding foreign entanglements. You know, try to keep sovereignty here and don't get tied in foreign wars. And so all this wise stuff, but what he says, he says, of all the habits and dispositions that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. So he goes out saying, guys, anybody that tries to separate religion and morality from public life, from politics, they're not patriots. They're trying to destroy the nation. Now, that's a big litmus test. And I was told that Washington was a great deist, that he was not a faith guy. And here he's saying, guys, don't, if anybody tries to take faith out of the public square, they're not a patriot. I'm going, oh my gosh, that's not what I was taught. And so when I read his farewell address, it really got me thinking, what else did I get taught right? And so separation church and state is one of those phrases that the way we use it today, um, probably the best way to explain it, the phrase did not originate with Jefferson. It originated back in the 14 and 1500s. Um, John Greenwood, a pastor in Great Britain, is probably the first guy credited with saying it back in the 1500s. And so they wrote about it for hundreds of years before Jefferson picked it up. So he was repeating what historical writers had said but even in Jefferson's letter, which he wrote on January the 1st, 1802, that's the famous letter the courts quote today on separation church and state. That letter is 233 words long. It's three paragraphs. It's easy to put a footnote in any court case. And since 1947, no, quote, no court has quoted more than eight words, a wall of separation between church and state. That's it. Every court that used it before 47 quoted the whole letter, like Reynolds versus United States in 1878. And every time they quoted the whole letter of Jefferson, 
They said, look, based on what Jefferson said, separation church and state means you can't stop a public religious activity. And so we always kept religion in public life using the separation phrase until a case in 47 called Everson versus Board of Education. And the court said, oh, look what Jefferson said, separation. We can't have any religion life. No, read the whole, there, there's a reason they don't put the whole letter in there. When you read the whole letter, you, it's obvious what Jefferson said because you had a group in, in Connecticut saying, we're afraid the government's going to shut down our religious activities and expression. He said, no, there's a wall of separation between church and state. They will not stop your religious activities. That's not what we get today. So that's the kind of stuff that really started turning me over and saying, I wasn't taught this. I got a whole different line, even on separation, church and state. And so if you go back and look at what Jefferson did, oh my gosh, Jefferson started church in the U.S. Capitol building. Every week we had church in the Capitol. By 1857, the largest church, Protestant church in the United States, met in the Capitol every week. Jefferson started that. He invited preachers to preach at that church. How is that separation? Well, that's why we don't look at what he actually did or said. We just use a phrase from him. So in a second, I want to ask you about the religious viewpoints of the founders, because those are often misconstrued or misunderstood. But first, with the ever-increasing numbers of car makes and models, it's now impossible to stock all the parts you need in a traditional chain storefront. Why endure the often pointless and seemingly intimidating questioning like, is your Odyssey an LX or an EX, and then wait while the counterman orders the only parts on his computer, just happening to choose the only brand his warehouse happens to carry? Well, you also have a computer with access to the internet, which is a really cool place, and that has access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. rockauto.com is a family business. They've served auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com and shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle. Choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? They've got amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Shapiro in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Okay, so let's talk about the religious perspective of the founders. So the, the typical narrative goes in public education. I was in public school, and I went to public school for, for college as well. The typical historians tend to say that the founders were basically deists, that they believed in the clockwork universe maker. He set the universe in motion, and then through natural law discoveries, we came up with all of these wonderful ideas. But the Bible is really sort of a secondary afterthought. Uh, that they, These were all deists. They, they may have been sort of a, a root-level theist belief system that they believed in. But, but when it came to the Bible, they didn't take it literally. They didn't take it seriously. What do you make of, of that characterization of the founders? Yeah, characterization is the right word. And it's based on the fact that we really don't know them or who they are. Um, we actually reprinted an old 1848 public school textbook that we used for generations. In public schools, we studied all 56 signers of the Declaration. We knew who they were, their names, their character, their sacrifices. We knew their faith, their family. We knew all about them. Today, we know a small handful. I was recently with an academic at, at Notre Dame, and he, he jumped me and said, you overstate the faith of the founding fathers. They were largely deists. I said, okay, here's the deal. You name a, a deist, what you call, you name what you call a deist founding father, 
And for everyone you name, I'll name five overt ones that today would probably be considered evangelicals in religious terms. So you name one, I'll name five. Let's see who runs out first. Well, he got through three or four and kind of ran out. I'm still going over here on the other side. And, and the problem is we take the, the least and we make that into the rule. And the rule is that, for example, the 56 signers of the Declaration, 29 of them graduated from schools that in their day were considered Bible schools or seminaries. Now, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that a deist is going to attend a Bible school or a seminary, a place that trained ministers, you know, and they were largely Christians. Um, so that's their faith. We see it in evidence in their writings, which is why we collect so much. You know, just an, an easy one is to take somebody like a John Hancock. This is an original proclamation from John Hancock, and this is for the state of Massachusetts. And by the way, he's calling them to a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer, which is fairly serious. That's kind of serious on your faith. But you find throughout that he is very open. As a Christian, he, he talks about Jesus Christ and Savior, etc. Twenty-two times he called the state of Massachusetts to prayer like this. You find that by the time you get to 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America, largely by founding fathers. So if they're deists, why do they have you praying? And why are they calling you to prayer with what might be considered evangelical language? Um, there's, he would alternate oftentimes with thanksgiving and fasting. This is one of Hancock's thanksgiving proclamations. This is when we found out Benedict Arnold was trying to kill George Washington. And it's, it's actually an amazing story. And he says, wow, the, the fingerprints of God in this are such to, to know that this was a God thing. Because the way, the way it came about, they should never have discovered the treason. It should never have been discovered. It was too well laid planned. So For people bunch, who don't know that story, maybe you can tell the story. Yeah, the, the story <laughs> is really kind of interesting uh, because Benedict Arnold had an ego, and his ego didn't get matched in the American army because he thought he should have been promoted much faster. And he wasn't being recognized and wasn't being promoted. So he starts saying, well, the British will respect me. They'll honor me. I, I can get a promotion through them. And so he starts working with the British. He's in charge of West Point. And by the way, the biggest statue you find when you go to the battlefield is Saratoga, which is the first major victory in the American Revolution. M massive statue of Benedict Arnold because he was the hero. He was an American general. He was courageous, but he just didn't think he got enough respect. And so because of that ego kind of thing, he turns to the British, and so he works with them. And because he's an American general, it's so good, he has West Point. All of West Point is under his control. And so he makes this plan to give West Point to the British, and he's going to have them there at the time that George Washington arrives so they can kill Washington or capture Washington in, in everything right there. So what happens is a British officer, uh, Andre, John Andre, is going back and forth with Benedict Arnold, and so they make the plans, they lay it out. Uh, Andre actually takes the plans, folds them up, puts them in the bottom of his shoe to hide in case anybody stops and they won't find it. And he gets into what is considered to be a safe part of New York. It is run by the British. All the loyalists are there. He's out of the American part of New York. He's back in the British part of New York. And he runs up on three guys and starts talking to them. And these guys, they're British guys. I can tell them what's going on. He starts sharing more information than he should have. Turned out they weren't British guys. They were three American militiamen who had just escaped from a British prison. And so here's three Americans who shouldn't even be in this area. They were prisoners. They got free. 
And now as Arnold starts becoming a little too open with them, they start getting a little curious and they start thinking this doesn't smell right. And so they actually grab him and take him to an American post, which wasn't supposed to be in that area at all. So everything was improbable all the way through. Uh, they searched, didn't find anything, and they said, let's search again. And for some reason, checked the bottom of his shoe, found the papers. So it just, everything was, it was just too many coincidences. Is that what they saw? This, this is too providential, too, too much God here. And so that's why Hancock called for that, that time of Thanksgiving. And it's interesting, another part of American history that I think we do a very poor job with today is when you look at American history, is largely white and Protestant. Uh, for example, we never talk about the Jewish founding fathers or particularly about Jewish cooperation back then. The fact that John, President John Adams, President John Quincy Adams both called for the reestablishment of Israel as an independent nation back in that day. I mean, nobody knows that. And then you start talking about what the founding women did and how that wives like Fran uh, Elizabeth Lewis, the, the wife of Francis Lewis, signed the Declaration was a prisoner of war for what she did for the revolution, actually died as a result of it. And so there were three women who were prisoners of war. I mean, just what the women did is unbelievable. And then you throw in, for example, what, what blacks did in the revolution. We think of the revolution as a bunch of white guys. No, there were so many black founding fathers, if I can call them that. And one of the best stories deals with Benedict Arnold. Because Benedict Arnold, once they discover the treason, he jumps over to the British side quick to get out of town before he gets executed for treason. And so he's now British side. They make him a general. And so as the, the British Army is moving south out of New York down toward Yorktown, Benedict Arnold, big part of that, he, he took his soldiers. He raided uh, New London, Connecticut. Um, the, the, the Battle of Groton Heights was Benedict Arnold killing Americans. And so you get the, he's now a British general. And as they work down into Virginia, uh, one of the problems George Washington has and young General Lafayette is they just don't have any intelligence on what the British are doing. They don't know what the British do until they see it. It's like if we could know, we could plan, we could be prepared. And so a, a black man named James Armistead became good friends with uh, Lafayette. He was fighting in the revolution and Lafayette, white guy, and Lafayette was massive anti-slavery guy and, and so big equality guy. And as he's talking, it's kind of like in the conversation, it kind of goes that, that Lafayette says, man, if we could just have some intelligence to know what they were doing, it would so help us. And, and James said, well, I'm, I'm willing to go do that. And, and Lafayette, no, no, that, that's way too dangerous. And so they're just talking and, and James says, no, I, I'll, I'll do that. And so what happens is James goes straggling into the British camp and he goes straggling in and he, he, he says, oh, I'm an escaped slave. I hate the Americans. They're so mean to me. They're just, uh, and, and so the British said, well, we'll take you in. And so he begins faithfully serving the British and fairly soon they say, hey, why don't we let you serve the officers? Cause you're really good, great attitude. Just, we love you. So they made him the servant to Benedict Arnold, the British general. So here you got a spy now who's with Benedict Arnold, and Arnold is with all the other British generals as they're making their plans. And so what happens is James Armistead every night gets word back to Lafayette and Washington, here's what they're doing. And so the British are moving around, and suddenly the Americans aren't where they're supposed to be, and they're over here where the British are. And then they send Benedict Arnold off on a mission, so he's gone. So James stays behind the British camp. And Lord Cornwallis actually takes him on as his servant. So now you got the commander-in-chief with a the spy there, 
and it, they're having a conversation kind of thing, and it's like Cornwallis says, man, we've got to have a spy in the camp somewhere, because now the Americans know what we're doing before we do it. And, and James, I know it's going to be really hard, but you've been so good to us. I know you're going to hate this idea, but would you go back and be a spy for us against the Americans? <laughs> and say, oh, no, don't make me go back to the Americans. <laughs> so he, he becomes the first double spy in American history. And because of his intelligence is why we're able to trap Cornwallis out in Yorktown in the American Revolution. So Washington, Lafayette, other guys credit a black double spy, first double spy in American history, with bringing the revolution to an early end, saving countless lives. Who's ever heard of James Armistead? You know, who's ever heard of, of a guy like, um, you have a, a, a guy, Prince Sisson, one of the first SEAL team members ever, black guy. What a remarkable mission they had in Newport and capturing a British general. And just, it's, it's the stuff of Hollywood movies. And there's so many black folks. Most people in Indiana have no idea that they're named the Hoosier State, named after a black preacher named Harry Hoosier, who converted so many people that moved into Indiana that was known as the Hoosier State after a black guy in the American founding. So you have all these black soldiers we don't know nothing about. What we do today is we, we show the bad and the ugly about America, but not much of the good. And so if we can show slavery, which is a Southern view, we'll do that. But we're not going to point out that there was never a time in Massachusetts when blacks could not vote, that we had blacks elected to office in America in 1768, Wentworth Cheswell, reelected for 49 years, held eight different political positions. He was kind of like the black Paul Revere, rode New England, warning people about the British coming. We don't hear these guys. And so that's one of the things that I think we really do wrong on, on history today is we know so little about it and we characterize so much and the characterization is not accurate. All this goes back to your simple question of the faith of the founders. We characterize them as deists. Well, we choose two or three or four and even they're not deists. I mean, you can choose Franklin. Franklin early in his writing said, I'm a deist. But then George Whitfield comes to America. He gets involved with George Whitfield, actually builds a place on his house for Whitfield to stay. And after Whitfield's been there, Franklin's life goes in a different direction. And he is such a faith guy for the rest of his life. But people point to that one letter he wrote when he was 20-something where he called himself a deist, and they don't look at the change that happened in his later life. So even the guys we call deists, George Washington, I mean, the guys who knew him best, um, Jared Sparks did the first edition of Washington's writings. He actually interviewed all the people who were with Washington, a lot of people, I can't say all, but key people. He even interviewed his own family. And they said, you might as well question Washington's patriotism as question his Christianity. I mean, everybody in the day said, no way is he a deist. So we've got his records, we've got his writings, but today we call him a deist. And it just doesn't line up historically. And that's, that's why we like original documents and going back. And by the way, Ben, I gotta say, I so appreciate you for your faith, your stand for faith, I appreciate you for your love for truth, that you keep going back to truth and you don't care if it offends both sides or either side and your courage in doing that. And that love of truth, I mean, when you get back to the actual documents, you get such a different narrative of America than what we see today. So I wanna ask you about one specific founding father. And the, the one that people always cite is the, the key deist, Jefferson, mm -hmm. who, who writes the Jefferson Bible, goes through, removes all of the sections that he finds troublesome, particularly the sections relating to miracles. How should we view Jefferson's faith? Because people, because he wrote the Declaration of Independence and obviously becomes president, and the Declaration of Independence is seen as in, in many ways even more foundational to the, to the country than the Constitution, Lincoln, obviously thought that you could only read the two in tandem, and it was for that reason that the Civil War was worthwhile and moral. So looking at, at Jefferson's faith, 
how, how should we adjudicate where Jefferson was in terms of his belief in God? Was he just a pure deist? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, and let me, let me hit real quick on what you said, Declaration and Constitution. You cannot separate the two. The Founding Fathers said you couldn't. They specifically said that. In the U.S. Code annotated today, the two documents you cannot violate with any law are the Declaration and the Constitution. So modern stuff, we separated that because the Declaration has so much faith in it, the Constitution doesn't. The Constitution has a lot of faith, and I could easily point that out, but people think it doesn't. So in their minds, they separate the religious from the secular, and, and it is striking that the Constitution, Article 7, dates itself to the Declaration. It goes, every federal law signed President Trump, what he signed last week, doesn't go to the Constitution, it goes to the Declaration. So we've never separated those two till modern culture wanted to kind of secularize it. Going back to Jefferson, when people ask me about the Jefferson Bible, that question, you know, I get, well, he cut out all the things he disagreed with, and then I start asking them questions. I said, okay, which Jefferson Bible are you talking about? What do you mean, the Jefferson Bible? Yeah, which one? You're talking about the 1804, the 1821. There were two? Yeah, well, if they don't know there's two, I, don't, I, I know they don't know what they're talking about. Then I ask, well, have you ever read either one of them? Well, no. Well, then how do you know he cut out the miraculous supernatural? That's what everybody says. Right. So go back and read it. So if we go back to the 1804 version, he's in the White House. He's president. He takes two Bibles. He cuts out sections in the Bible, pastes them all together. Now, that's the first Jefferson Bible, and he did that largely. He had been given a, a friend, Peace, a guy, a guy named Peace, gave him a sermon from a guy in Scotland named Bennett. And the guy in Scotland said, look, if, if you want to reach America, Native Americans with Christianity, do not give them a Bible. Because if you do, they might read the genealogies. They, they might read, you know, and that's not what you want. He said, what you need to do is take the teachings of Jesus and give them the teachings of Jesus. Don't give them the whole Bible. And Jefferson, great idea. So what Jefferson cut out was what in, in Christian terms would be called the red letters of the Bible. So cut out the words of Jesus, pasted them all end in. If you read that, you find Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out devils and all the miracles that are there, it's, it's there. And so, okay, what happened to all this supernatural stuff that you said he cut out? Because it, it's there. And, and by the way, he did that. He gave that to some missionary friends. He was really close with Native Americans. He was really into wanting to share the Bible with them. And so he gave that to some missionary friends, said this is much cheaper to print than the whole Bible. These are the teachings of Jesus. And instead of going through four teachings and four gospels, it's got the teaching one time, so you don't read it four times. So it's what's often called a synoptic Bible. It is just a linear Bible on the teachings. So it has supernatural stuff all throughout. So I say, well, obviously you couldn't have been speaking about the 1804 Bible. You must have been speaking about the 1820 Bible. Have you ever read that? No. Oh, okay, let's talk about that. Because on all this that I'm telling you, this is all recorded in Jefferson's writings. These are in his writings. People look at the product. They don't read what he said or why he did it or anything else. They, they just jump to this characterization again. So the 1821, Jefferson starts writing so many of his friends. He said, the thing that helps you have limited government is having moral people. And when you have moral people, you have less need for outside government because you have more internal government. So he started reading the writings of every moral philosopher he could find. He, I mean, Pythagoras and Cato and Plato, all the guys. And he told friend after friend, he said, I've read them all. 
And I think the moral teachings of Jesus are better than any of those teachings. And so what he did in his own handwriting, he went through and picked 81 of what he considered the best moral teachings of Jesus. And he then pasted them end to end in in a day book that he had. But because he spoke several languages, he also pasted the same teachings end to end in Latin and in Greek and in French. And so he would read all, all the teachings of Jesus, four languages, and so that's what he read on a daily basis. Um, nobody really knew he had that book until the Librarian of Congress, Cyrus Adler, in 1886, was talking to a grandson of Jefferson, and the grandson said, ah, I've, I've got his book on all the moral teachings of Jesus. And they said, really? We'd like to buy this. So the Library of Congress bought it. Then in 1902, um, a congressman, John Lacey, out of Iowa, read this and said, this is the greatest collection of moral teachings we've ever seen. So he started writing op-eds about Jefferson's Jefferson Bibles, what it became known as. And so he wrote op-eds, and in 1904, Congress took it and reprinted it and gave a copy to every member of Congress for the next 50 years and said, if you will live by the moral teachings here, you won't have ethical problems, you won't have corruption, etc. And so it's, that's what's called the Jefferson Bible today. Jefferson's own handwriting, because the book is a reproduction of Jefferson's own notes, um, it's called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And so it has the great command, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, uh, forgiving your enemies, uh, kindness to enemies. It's got 81 moral teachings, and that's the Jefferson Bible. And they say, ah, it doesn't have any, any supernatural stuff in it. It does, but that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was collecting moral teachings. So if you're telling me that Jefferson so hated the Bible that he eliminated supernatural, then first, you've got to explain what 1804 is all about. Second, I'll show you all sorts of supernatural stuff because there's heaven and hell and angels and all sorts of stuff and the moral teachings of Jesus. So both of them have supernatural. But then I've got to ask you to explain to me why it is that Jefferson, who's a lifetime member of the Virginia Bible Society, if he so hated Bibles, why was he a lifetime member? And if he so hated Bibles, why was one of the three largest contributions he ever gave was to a Bible society to have spread Bibles? And why is it that he gave a full Bible to every one of his kids and grandkids when they learned to read? That was the first reading book he wanted them to have was a full Bible. So I asked people, if Jefferson so hates the Bible, then how do you explain all this behavior? And the problem is, since about 1903, what's known as the Unitarians have said, Jefferson is a Unitarian and he didn't like Jesus and so, and they've adopted him, but academically you can't sustain that position. And so when you look at truth and read Jefferson's writings, when you actually read both of the books, the Jefferson Bible, you come up with a completely different conclusion than what academic, you know how it is with academics, they repeat each other. They don't go back to original sources, they quote each other. And so that's how the Jefferson's got a bad rap. Uh, as, as to his faith, he kept calling himself a Christian. Now, as a Christian, I would say mm, probably not orthodox <laughs> in some of his beliefs, but he, called, he, he certainly didn't run from that title. Uh, I would say from my standpoint, he's probably not a Christian, but that's not my decision. That's God's decision. You know, I, that's, if, if, he, if he adhered to that faith, he wasn't an enemy of it by any means. Uh, he was an enemy of some of its doctrines, but never of Jesus and never of the Scriptures, just some parts of it. So that's, that's kind of really, if I can say it, the, kind of the truth behind the Jefferson Bible that we just rarely get today. So one of the things that I want to ask you about is what the role of the state was in promoting religion yeah. 
early on, because obviously this has become a very controversial proposition. I'm going to ask you about that in just a second. But first, you get to the end of the day, and you're trying to go to sleep, and you find it really difficult. You're struggling to sleep. Well, you're not alone. One in three U.S. adults doesn't get enough sleep. I am one of these people. If you're not sleeping enough, it can affect your cognitive functions during the day, like learning, problem-solving, decision-making. That's why we're partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleepless are more prone to accidents, weight gain, depression. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body need, like soundscapes and over 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. Right now, my listeners, Ben Shapiro listeners, get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Ben. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash Ben. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash Ben. By the way, it doesn't just work on adults. It also works on children. They've got these sleep stories. Puts your kids right out. Go check them out right now at calm.com slash Ben. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash Ben. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, there's kind of a rich debate that's broken out in modern times right now. And it has a lot of historical antecedents, obviously. And that is, what is the role of government in promoting or or not promoting religious institutions? So this, this debate is... I think, quite fascinating because it pits a lot of conservatives against each other. You mm-hmm. have folks who consider themselves classically liberal. Uh, I, I put myself more in this category mm-hmm. where I say that the, the entire bargain of the government was that the government was basically going to stay out of this realm specifically because they assumed there would be a moral and religious people that was going to fill that gap. And then there are a group of folks who say the government should take a more forcible position in trying to promote religious morality, Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. morality. What's your view of, of where the founders came down on that? The founders came down on, as being part of the culture of the society, not the doctrine society, but the culture society. You wanted a biblically moral, you wanted the biblical morals of the culture. There were a lot of morals available at the time. Um, I mean, we had a 32-year war where we fought Muslim morals, and it, it was because we did not agree with their morals. We ended the American Revolution in 1783. Really, the first foreign group for ambassadors that Congress sends out is in 1784, and it's Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and it's Ben Franklin. And it's go negotiate with the Muslims that keep attacking us. And so we end up with a 32-year war against, against Islamic terrorists. Uh, part of that is when the first Quran is printed in America. And that was done by Isaiah Thomas, which is kind of like the Simon and Schuster of their day. And they printed it and said, you guys need to read what's in here. Because when you read what's in the Quran, you'll understand why this is so incompatible with the morals and the values we've they think you go to heaven for killing people. My gosh, what kind of morals is that? And that's actually what Jefferson wrote in a letter to the State Department in 1786. He said, we, we finally asked this, this Muslim ambassador, we've done nothing to you as Muslim. Why do you keep attacking us? Why do you keep hitting our ships and killing our guys and enslaving? And he said, because that's how we go to heaven. And Jefferson's like, no way. And so that's when Jefferson went and bought a Quran for the first time and read it. Two-volume set he got in London, a 1764 edition, read it. Uh, that helped him then know how to fight them in subsequent years when he sent the Army and Navy to Tripoli from the halls of Montezuma, the shores of Tripoli, the Marine Corps him. So there were, there were morals that were incompatible with what we believed were constitutional freedoms. Uh, Sharia law would be within that because they don't allow religious freedom. So we believed that the government needed to promote those things that it wanted to preserve. And if you want to preserve freedom, you've got to promote the things that, that enhance freedom. Because if you have a people that don't believe those, those beliefs, then you can't survive as a nation, which is kind of where we are now. We're so polarized. Everybody's got their own value system. 
and, and you can't be cohesive as a nation. So within that framework, they promoted what we would call biblical values of morality. Now, I'll point out that you take somebody like Ben Franklin, I don't think he was a Christian, but I will also point out that he was very close friends with Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine probably is the least religious of the founding fathers. So, but even at that, Paine is not anti, he, he's not anti-religious in the way he's presented today. We actually have a six-page letter from Thomas Paine where that he is defending uh, himself from the attacks made on him by other founding fathers. Because in 1793, he came out with the Age of Reason. And the Age of Reason attacked Judaism, it attacked Christianity, attacked Old Testament, New Testament, went after all of it, but it was pro-God. And so when the founding fathers saw that, um, they attacked him. Patrick Henry wrote a whole book against him. Um, you had Sam Adams doing op-eds on him in, in, in Boston newspapers. Um, you had George Washington who never spoke to him again. I mean, the guys just turned their back. If you're going to be anti-religious, you're not the guy we thought you were. And so in that period of time, before he wrote The Age of Reason, he actually took the manuscript ideas and sent them all to Ben Franklin and said, hey, look over this. Tell me what you think. And so it's an attempt to remove religion from America. And Franklin wrote him back and said, this is a terrible idea. He said, I would advise you to burn this paper before it is seen by any other person. And he talked about what it would be to unchain the tiger. And, and if you take the biblical morals out of America, do you realize what you're doing? And so he said, think how great a portion of mankind have needed the motives of religion to restrain their vice, to support their virtue. And so Franklin advised him not to. He went ahead and did it and suffered the, the attacks he had. But when Sam Adams wrote that piece against Paine, that op-ed in the Boston Papers, Paine then wrote a six-page letter back to, to uh, Sam Adams, and that's the letter we have. He says, I am a huge God believer. He said, I wrote The Age of Reason because I saw France had an a headlong in the atheism. He said, atheism will destroy any nation. I'm trying to tell them they need God. In the now, I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe in Judaism, but you need God. And so even the least religious founding father, Thomas Paine, is trying to keep God at the center of the nation because being God conscious is a restraint on your behavior. Uh, you know, scriptures are, are pretty clear for faith people that if you stop thinking about God, your behavior changes really quick. And so we do things to help us remember to think about God. The way we treat one another is different when we think about God accounting to Him. So that's where the founding fathers were. Uh, I mentioned there were two documents that really kind of flipped me. One was Washington's farewell address where he's clearly saying, if you want political prosperity, don't secularize the country. Don't secularize the nation. Don't take religion out. The second thing that hit me was I found an 1844 U.S. Supreme Court case that was a unanimous decision. And in that case, the court... Now, in my life, I've been involved with eight cases at the U.S. Supreme Court that have dealt with religious expression, some way, shape, fashion, or form. So as I was reading this 1844 case, it was quoting founding fathers like James Wilson, who was the signer of the Constitution and Declaration, second most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He is an original justice on the Supreme Court, started the first law school. I mean, a big guy. And it's quoting all these founding fathers, and I, I was reading the case, but it said, hey, if you're going to be a government-funded school in America, you will teach the Bible. We're not going to have a government-funded school that won't teach the Bible because we need the morals that come from the Bible. 
Now, it said you, you have to teach the Bible without note or comment. You don't go through and add doctrine to it. You just teach the Bible as a, as a book. And so that was the position we took all the way until 1963. That position changed in 63. We're in 62 first in, in uh, Ingle Vital, then 63 in Abney, Shemp, Murray, Corlett. The court said, hey, we think what we've been doing for 340 years is wrong. No more voluntary prayer, no more Bible reading, that's all going. And it's significant to me that in those cases, the court said what we're doing is without historical or legal precedent. It's never before done in American history. So literally in our collection of stuff, we have uh, lots of educational documents. We have a big section on education, textbooks on, on whether it's geography or math or English. One of the textbooks you find across all generations is Bible, all the way in education until 63. So we taught that. We thought the morals were good. You don't have to be a Christian Jew. You don't have to be a religious person. But if you, if you behave by those morals, we have a self-governed nation, less government needed, limited government. So that was really the view they saw. They did not want the government promoting religions or promoting religious doctrines or penalizing people for not having the right doctrine. But they did want to promote religion and morality, but not all religion, not all morality, biblical morality is what they were after. And so they did make that distinction like with Muslims and others, although Muslims were always welcome to come to America. We never kept that. But we did say, but realize when you get here, the moral standards we use are these Judeo-Christian moral standards. So in a second, I want to ask you about that because there, there is a question that I've been asked, uh, as I say, in my new book, uh, I write a fair bit about this. And one of the questions that I'm often asked is, well, you know, it's true that there was a lot of Christian talk at the time of the founding. It's true that people were studying the Bible. But that's because, you know, that's just what everybody did at the time. Was this really, you know, key to the philosophy mm -hmm. of the founding? Is there any real connection between the Bible and the philosophy of the founding? I'll ask you that question in just one second. First, as you know from watching the news, the big tech companies, they're all looking for your data. Why? Because they make gobs and gobs of cash because you and I are giving them all of that data for free. Well, if you want to keep giving them your data, go right ahead. But you should know that you too can be earning money off your own data with Big Token. Here's how it works. First, you download the app and you sign up for a free Big Token account. Next, you complete actions to earn points. Actions include answering surveys, checking into locations, connecting your social accounts, and more. Then you can redeem those points for awards like cash and gift cards. You can even donate your earnings to charity if you're that kind of person. You choose what data you share with Big Token, and then you get paid for it. Your data is always secure in Big Token. The best part? You get paid. If you want to start earning money for your data, go to the App Store or Google Play. Search for Big Token. That's B-I-G-T-O-K-E-N. That's one word. Download the app. Sign up. Make sure you use my referral code, Ben Shapiro. Again, search Big Token in the App Store or Google Play. Download the app. Use my referral code, Ben Shapiro, to sign up. Claim your data. Get paid. There's no reason everybody else should make money off your data. Use your own data and get paid at Big Token and use referral code, Ben Shapiro, to sign up. Alrighty, so... The question that I was posing before the break is that you know, when, when folks talk about sort of the connection between founding philosophy and Judeo-Christian morality, there's this attempt by some folks to basically say, well, sure, all these people read the Bible, and sure, they refer to the Bible, but the, that, that's just because this is what the culture was. I mean, what else would they be? It wasn't like there was a thriving atheistic community in, in 1760 in the same way that there is in, say, 1960. So is this really more of a, a it just sort of happened here, and everybody happened to be Christian, and and believe in Judeo-Christian values, or was there some deep philosophical connection between Judeo-Christian values and the American founding? I'm going to back into the answer to that question a couple of ways. One is, for all the collection that we have of founding documents, we have more than 120,000 
originals or copies of original founding documents from before 1812. So I have so many of the handwritten documents of these guys. And having read thousands and thousands and thousands of their letters and their works, et cetera, and having myself studied the Bible for a long time. You know, as a kid, I grew up, and I, I believe that you need to read the Scriptures kind of like from cover to cover every year. You know, you go through it. And so, therefore, I'm very familiar with biblical rhetoric and language. Um, and as I'd read the Founders' writings, I kept seeing these Bible verses all throughout their writings. And so what happened was a few years ago, uh, a publishing company came to me and said, hey, would you, would you do a commentary on the Bible? I said, no, you don't need my opinions, but I know somebody who can comment on the Bible. And so what we did is we took the letters of the Founding Fathers, and when they would cite a specific Bible verse for why they did something, we let that be the commentary in that part of the Bible. So it resulted in what we call the Founder's Bible. It's them commenting on the Bible. But as an example, um, Jeremiah 17, 9, John Adams has three letters saying that the principle in Jeremiah 17, 9 is why we did separation of powers. Now, others had talked about separation of powers, Montesquieu in France and the spirit of laws. Nobody had done separation of powers the way we did until America. And John Adams said, we got that out of Jeremiah 17, 9. And by the way, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? How do you get separation of powers? And their thing is, look, human tendency is to be bad-hearted unless you have a religious influence to, to make you better. And so they said, that's the history of mankind. I mean, you, you have three branches of government in Great Britain, but when the king is bad, the judiciary is bad, and the parliament's bad. Based on what we see that the heart's wicked, maybe we can create a system where that all three hearts won't be wicked at the same time. Maybe if the judiciary goes bad, we can have the president and Congress stop that. And so that bad heart principle that without God's influence, you, you do the wrong things, that's what really drove them to say, let's put power really distinguish and checks and balances. And so we're really the first government to do that, but they found it in biblical reasoning. Um, when you get into oaths and you talk about the oath, the five oath clauses in the Constitution, Rufus King, signer of the Constitution, talked about how that our oath system came out of the Bible. And you go, how? Well, you start in Genesis where God says, Abraham, I swore an oath to you. So God swears an oath. Then God says, I swore an oath by my right hand. And then you, you go through and you, you find four things that we do in the oath today. Matter of fact, we're told in Deuteronomy, swear oaths in his name, which is why we say, so help me God. So everything we do in the oath, founding father Rufus King said, we do the oaths the way we do in America because of what the Bible teaches. And so what we found was it's not just philosophical part of the culture. We find them saying this Bible verse, for example, uh, a guy named James Kent, who's called a father of American jurisprudence. He said, when we created our judicial system here, he's one of the two guys responsible for our judicial system. He said, we set it up with that we have circuit court judges. U.S. Supreme Court today, they, back in that day, they got on a horse and they actually all rode a circuit. Today, they're over the Ninth Circuit or whatever. But James Kent said, we got that out of 1 Samuel 7, where it says Samuel judged Israel, and he rode the circuit from Gilgal to Mizpah. The judges were going out among the people and traveling, and that's why they set up a circuit court that would travel. So when I found all of those verses that are specific, they're not just generic tone, you know, tone verses. These are specific applications. They got me really intrigued, but then I think what really may be the, the best answer to your question is this book. It's called The Origins of American Constitutionalism. This is done by professors at University of Houston. 
poli-sci professors, as published by LSU Press. And these guys said, you know, when you look at, at the American documents, we're different from every other nation. We have ideas that other nations never implemented. Where do our founders get those ideas? And they said, we think that if we can go back and read what they wrote and see who they quoted, we'll know where they got their ideas. So they collected 15,000 representative writings out of the founding era. They went through all 15,000. They found 3,154 direct quotes. It took them 10 years to document every quote back to its original source. At the end of 10 years, they said, we now know where the founders got their ideas. So the number one most cited individual, and, and when you've got 6,000 years of writings and you've got tens of thousands of nations have come and gone, you've got a lot of people you can choose from. They said the number one most cited individual was um, Charles Montesquieu, Baron Montesquieu out of France, The Spirit of the Law, 1750. 8.3%. That's a lot for one guy when you've got thousands of guys to choose from. Number two was William Blackstone, his four-volume commentary on the, the laws, commentary on the laws. That was number two at 7.9%. Number three was John Locke at 2.9%, particularly this book by Locke, The Two Treatises of Government. Those were the top-sided individuals. But what they found that was really kind of shocking was the single most cited source in the American founding was the Bible, 34%. That's four times more than Locke. Four, or that's 12 times more than Locke, four times more than Montesquieu, four times more than Blackstone, the Bible. And then they said, which Bible verses were quoted most often, which books? And Deuteronomy was the number one most quoted book where that Israel is building its nation. Moses is setting up the nation. And then Isaiah was next most quoted. And so, I mean, even the secular academics have documented that the Bible was the primary source in the ideas that shaped the American founding. So it's not like it's in the atmosphere and it's in the culture. These guys really did think according to specific Bible verses, they applied them. And so between that and the Founders' Bible, it's pretty compelling that it was just not the atmosphere of the culture. It was the thinking that went behind it. So another question that I'm asked a lot, specifically in this context, is, great, so the Bible is instrumental in the American founding. The Bible is also used for nefarious purposes, people quoting the Bible in order to justify slavery for centuries. Mm -hmm. So how do you answer the the accusation, effectively, the Bible can be used for any variety of reasons, and some of those reasons have been quite awful over time? Uh, the way I answer is with the concept of original intent. Because when you look at original intent, when you take a clause out of the Constitution, you can make it say something it was never designed to say. Uh, for example, we say federal judges have lifetime appointments. Well, the guys who wrote the Constitution says we definitely don't want lifetime appointments for judges. That crusade started in 1765 with Sam Adams, who said the two biggest problems we've got with British judges is they have lifetime appointments. They're not accountable. If we ever get to do a government, we'll never have lifetime appointments. So, and the Constitution actually says good behavior. Judges can serve for the duration of good behavior. What's good behavior? Look at the first six judges. They took off the court in their lifetime. You took judges off the court. One guy cussed in the courtroom. They said, that's bad behavior for a federal judge. You're gone. You know, so there were no lifetime appointments. Now we take that clause and say you have lifetime appointments. That's not original intent. Well, you can take Bible verses and make them look like they're pro-slavery. But when you read the whole context of the Bible, it's a liberty book. It's all about liberty. It's all about self-control. It's all about how you treat others. You treat others the way you want to be treated. Do you want to be a slave? Well, then don't make slaves. So there will always be occasions, and that's part of the nature of man. Again, that's why we had checks and balances, because 
man's heart, when you are trying to make your ends justify your means, you'll find things that'll say things that, yeah, I can take a Bible verse here or there. But when you know the whole scripture and put it all together, it's hard to do that. But there's no question that, uh, and, and this is the, the story of human nature. You know, there's good people, there's bad people. Even good people can do bad things. Like David is one of the heroes of the Bible. My gosh, he's the worst father ever. Can't raise his kids. And then what he does with Bathsheba and murders Uriah. But overall, he did really good things, but he had bad episodes. So you, in that period of time, you can justify a lot and look for verses to justify. So for me, it all goes back to original intent. The Bible is a liberty book. And it's the abolitionists who finally prevailed, and the abolitionists were largely the most religiously dedicated people, whether it be the Quakers or the Congregationalists, you know, founding fathers like Benjamin Rush, um, who founded the first abolitionist society, Presbyterian. Those guys that were really Bible-oriented were the, the loudest advocates for anti-slavery and for freedom. Yes, you have Southern preachers who tried to make their point, even have some Jewish writers try to make that point. But overall, the religious community is really over here. And so even today, you'll have you know little schisms that will shoot off religious people trying to make a point. And everybody says, wait a minute, that's not what the whole book says when you take the whole book. And I think that's what you have to do with that because there's going to be religious people that did some really bad stuff. But overall, religious people have done much more good than they've ever done bad. And that's why you have to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly and judge the whole thing by the big picture, When you not look just at where America belief. stands right now, obviously we had deep religious roots. And we've seen a lot of those roots really erode. People go to church a lot less. Very few people have even a baseline familiarity with the Bible. Our educational system not only doesn't teach the Bible, but is specifically prevented from doing mm-hmm. so. Uh, so do you have, what, what's your hope for sort of the future of the country, given the lack of both founding literacy and biblical literacy that, that's prevailing? I'm very active in government and politics. Um, we have a very large network of legislators that, that we're over. I work in public policy all the time. Again, been involved in Supreme Court cases. None of that is an excuse for why individual people don't study the scriptures and apply it and live it themselves and teach it to their friends and neighbors. Uh, I don't need the government doing that. Now, the, I would like the government to reinforce what works, and religious morality does work. It'd be nice if they were not enemies of it, if they were at least allies and friends. And, and so even when you look at re- recent decisions like the Bladensburg decision, which is where the Supreme Court said, hey, it's okay to have that war memorial in the shape of a cross in Maryland, suddenly they're not being hostile to, they're at least accommodating people's own religious expressions. And, and so you're in that situation, but that doesn't, change the fact that right now, speaking for Christians, only 14% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. That's not a government's fault. That's people's fault. And, and But I can look at the government and say, you know, the 1980 Supreme Court case called Stone v. Graham, and I actually, it was about the Ten Commandments in Kentucky classrooms. I actually have the copy of the Ten Commandments that led to that Supreme Court case. It's very intriguing because in the schools of Kentucky, as you would walk through the school's hallways, there were many pictures hanging on the walls. A picture of George Washington, Cape, Lighter, Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, and horse running through a pasture. And, but one of the pictures was a copy of the Ten Commandments, just, just hanging there. And it wasn't part of the classroom, wasn't part of the curriculum. But the question was asked, what if a student sees the Ten Commandments? What if they turn aside and go over there and read them? And this is the question. Is it constitutional for a student to voluntarily read a copy of the Ten Commandments at school? The Supreme Court came back and said, absolutely not. 
And, and to quote the court, it said, if a student were to see the Ten Commandments, they might be induced to read them. If they were to read them, they might venerate, respect, and obey them, and that would be unconstitutional. They go, oh yeah, things like don't steal and don't kill and don't purge yourself. So legally, we can't even put in front of kids what is hanging in more than 50 locations in the Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court has more than 50 depictions of the Ten Commandments in it. Some are in stone, some are on, on, on the wall that separates the Supreme Court bench, the justices from the Supreme Court attorneys. There's lattice work there, bronze lattice work, Ten Commandments on every medallion cross. So you're not letting kids see the basis of our legal code it's easier to find the Ten Commandments in a government building, it was, in a government building than a place of worship. And now you can't even do that. So, I mean, if the government were at least not hostile, it would be helpful. But now they're saying, you can't even let kids know what the Ten Commandments are. Think how good Chicago would be if they at least knew the Ten Commandments and stopped killing each other at the rate of one every eight hours or whatever it is. You know, things like don't steal and don't get, those are good, wholesome things. So I can look and say, I think the government's had a role in creating an environment that's very hostile to religion. We have facilitated what legally we call the dissenter's veto. If somebody objects to everybody else sharing their faith, we're gonna make everybody else stop so this guy won't object. Nonsense, you don't let one person veto everyone else. And so that started to change with the new justices, new courts, we're starting to win some things we haven't won in 50, 60 years. Uh, we're seeing a turn, but that still will, Never excuse why individuals don't go back and study the scriptures themselves, learn the teachings, live those teachings, become benevolent, become good citizens, become moral citizens, become good neighbors, help others. Government doesn't do that. We can, but the government can reinforce that. So in a second, I want to ask you one final question, but I'm going to ask you, you brought some of the artifacts with you today. I want to ask what are your actual favorite artifacts uh, that, that Wall Builders has? If you want to hear David Barton's answer, you have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. To subscribe, head on over to Daily Wire. Click subscribe. You can hear the end of our conversation over there. David Barton, Wall Builders, thank you so much for stopping by. And it's, it's wonderful to hear the history. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate you, bro. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Mathis Glover. Edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.